Daniel chapter two. If you'd grab your Bible, turn to Daniel chapter two. We sort of left things hanging on Sunday uh, because we talked about everything that kind of leads up to this dream of Nebuchadnezzar. But we didn't talk about the dream itself or what it means because there wasn't nearly enough time to do that. So uh, it kind of got us set up for tonight to be able to kind of get into this dream and what it means. Um, so let's start, let's kind of pick up in verse 17. Uh, I'd like to kind of back up just a little bit. Um, and we saw, if you weren't with us, just real quick, uh, Nebuchadnezzar troubled, anxious, couldn't get his dream figured out or what it was. So he said he was gonna cut up all the magicians, soothsayers, Chaldeans, wise men of Babylon, the elites. And he was gonna chop them up if they didn't give him the dream and its interpretation. Uh, but Daniel comes through uh, and that's kind of where we pick it up. He gets the dream um, because of the Lord. It's the Lord's mercy. And let's, that's why I wanna back that up and just kind of stop there and kind of rem remind ourselves a little bit about that. Um, let's take a look. It, it starts in verse 17 where we'll pick it up. Then Daniel went to his house and made the thing known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions. Uh, remember, those names, those are all the Hebrew names. Um, Daniel's Babylonian name, Belteshazzar. Uh, Hananiah, uh, Mishael, and Azariah was Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So if you're just joining us, that's, that's who we're talking about here. But those, those names, they'll flip them around sometimes here in the book. And so you're kind of like, who are we talking about? But that's, that's this team of four, but Daniel definitely is kind of the lead of all these guys um, uh, as, as you kind of see the story unfold. So he goes to his buddies and um, makes it known to uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, verse, verse 18, that they would desire mercies of the God of heaven concerning this secret, that Daniel and his fellows should not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Um, now, if we're just kind of jotting down notes here, uh, um, let's start with kind of a first point, and that is, you know, the problem here that Daniel's facing. Um, if you want to take down the notes, number one, the problem moved Daniel to prayer. Uh, that's kind of an important thing. Hopefully that's what problems do for you and for me. I love this Daniel. He, he, he's moved to prayer, and it took da Daniel kind of, I love that he didn't just take his prayer to the Lord, that's, that's good right there. I mean, wouldn't you agree taking your prayer to the Lord? That's a good deal right there. But I also like that Daniel took his prayer and he, and he went to his buddies and then they prayed and took the prayer to the Lord. There's something about praying with your, your friends and family and people. There's, there's power in praying together. Um, don't ever f forget that. Um, I think sometimes we, we well, I, I, prayer is just between me and God and I'm, I feel awkward praying with people, but man, so there's something to it. And I, I'm not sure I can even articulate it very well or even you know, uh, make a huge biblical defense other than you do see people in the Bible praying together like this. Daniel thought it would be valuable to go to his buddies, uh, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah and say, Let, we gotta pray. And they were praying together about this. So Daniel took his problem to his friends and they took the problem to the Lord. And that's a great model, great pattern uh, for, for you and me. It reminds me of Philippians chapter four, you know, verses six and seven. You know, many of you guys have that memorized. Be careful, you know, or anxious, as I think it's the New King Jimmy that says, be careful for nothing, but everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall keep your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. 
Man, don't you love that promise? That's one of the great promises of the Bible. And, and the word careful, anxious, you know, there's a lot of anxiety in Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar's anxious, which makes everybody else anxious because he chops people up and pokes their eyes out and fries them on barbecue grills. Um, there's a little stress in Babylon. And these guys take their anxiety to the Lord and say, Lord, we need your help. Um, so I, I do love that Daniel, Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, these guys, they know where to bring their problems. When you're facing difficulty, bring your prayers to the Lord. Oh, what, you know, um, oh, what uh, peace we often forfeit as the old hymn goes. Uh, oh, what needless pain we bear all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Uh, what a great old hymn that is and how true it is. So Daniel here, he is um, taking his prayer, his problem uh, to the Lord. Very, very key in this story. Um, now it goes on there in verse 19. Then was the secret revealed unto Daniel in a night vision. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Um, and, uh, and Daniel answered and said, blessed be the name of God forever and ever for wisdom and might are his. Um, I guess if you're keeping notes of how Daniel responds to this problem, we saw the first thing is he takes his, his problem to the Lord in prayer. But then the answer um, moves Daniel, point number two, the answer moves Daniel to, you know, praise, to offer praise to the Lord. And we talked about this last week, how, you know, some of us would be really tempted to just, pure, once we get the answer, go tell Nebi. Man, don't chop us up, we got, it, we got the answer. But Daniel sees fit to say, man, I'm gonna be thankful. It sort of reminds me of those you know, lepers who came to Jesus and, and you know, he heals them and they all take off. But only one dude, one of the lepers comes back and says, uh, by the way, thanks. Uh, like, remember that? Like, like that could be us. You know, it's funny how we're all, oh Lord, we're all fervent in prayer. And, and then we get the answer and we're like, yeah, whatever. Okay, we got it. What a coincidence, it worked out. And we forget, no, 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 we prayed about that. That's why, by the way, I like writing down some of my most um, heartfelt prayers that I've been praying to the Lord. I write them down sometimes in, in like a journal or talk about it in my writing because I wanna go back and look and remember, oh Lord, you're the one who, you know, sometimes we pray about stuff and then when the answer comes, we forget to go back to the Lord and say, Lord, you are the revealer of secrets. You're the one who takes away the anxiety. You know, I love, I love that Daniel does this properly. Um, you know, I love that the answer uh, moves Daniel to praise. Now, this, this message of praise that Daniel gives, we could spend a whole night just talking about um, the, the things that he does. Now, by the way, when you offer the Lord, there's two kind of components to that. Um, there's praise and thanksgiving. Sometimes we, you know, as Christians, we talk about them all as kind of the same thing. Praise, thanksgiving, thanksgiving, praise. It's all the same thing. It's not. Praise talks about who he is, when we praise Lord, we're saying, Lord, you are, and then fill in the blank. And that's, that's offering praise to the Lord. Thanksgiving, obviously, is saying, thank, thank you, Lord, for what he's done. Who he is, what he's done. Praise, thanksgiving. And Daniel does both of those things. And let's, let's kind of divide um, what, what he does. Daniel does offer praise to the Lord. And he offers seven attributes of the Lord that are part of his praise that he's gonna give. And I love this, the seven attributes are pretty pr profound. And this is where we can just camp out on these attributes of God. And I would invite you to maybe meditate on these seven things and pray through them yourself and think about God and his nature and his character because Daniel nails this down beautifully. 
Um, let's look at those. If you kind of look at these verses here as it's sort of divided out, the first attribute is wisdom and might are his. Right there in verse 20, it says, Daniel answered and said, blessed be the name of God forever and ever for wisdom and might are his. Oh, the wisdom of God. His ways are you know, higher than our ways. His thoughts are wiser than our thoughts. The wisdom, God just is the ultimate source of wisdom. Um, but you know, what a combo. You got the wisdom, but you also have the might. God is mighty. Uh, and man, when you're in trouble and you're, you know, uh, you're thinking about you know, the might of King Nebuchadnezzar, for you and me, that be, might be the might of the CDC or the state of Oregon uh, or you know, the might of the school district or the might of all these things that kind of stress us out a little bit these days. Um, well, as it turns out, wisdom and might are his. The Lord is the one who's mighty. The Lord is the one who's wise. Daniel just acknowledges that. There's something about acknowledging these beautiful attributes of God. Well, point number two, he says, wisdom and might are his. And then in verse 21, it says, and he changeth the times and the seasons. Um, that's an interesting sort of description, how the Lord is the one who can, can direct what's happening, when it's happening, and why it's happening. Um, he's the author and the finisher. He's, he's the one who knows what's going on. He's the one who um, brings in the diff different ages throughout world history. The Lord raises up kingdoms and puts them down and there's seasons and times and dispensations that the Lord ushers in. And that's all his doing there. It says there in verse 21. But in the second part of verse 21, it says he changes the times and the season. Then number three on our list, he removeth kings and sets up kings. Man, this is so important for us to remember this. I think we need to take a whole lot more things a whole lot less seriously. Uh, we get all up in a tizzy about who the president is. And I understand it's important. I'm not diminishing that. And, and don't, you know, don't take me wrong. I've always said, make sure and vote because it's something that we have as a liberty, as a country. We get to vote in who our officials are. Um, and hopefully those votes are, are counting and being counted correctly. Um, <laughs> I know our nation's a little bit uh, up in a tizzy about, is that really working out very well? Hopefully we'll figure that out pretty soon. Um, but you say, but Brett, I think it was, it was stolen or whatever. Who cares? Because we do our best, we vote. Um, and, and somebody needs, you know, there are people the Lord raises up to be politically active and drive and fix and all that. But ultimately, guess what? He removes kings and he sets up kings. Um, and he puts good people in and he puts bad people in. Uh, there's examples in the Bible of the Lord putting bad people in office. Um, you know, it's funny how uh, people say, how can Christians support Donald Trump? Or, you know, how can God support Samson? Samson would make Donald Trump blush. Um, Samson was like constantly sleeping with prostitutes openly. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I mean, I don't want to go into some of the graphic detail, but like he slew all these people and killed guys with the jawbone of a donkey um, just for their clothes. He slew a bunch of Philistines so he could rip their clothes off of them and give the bloody clothes to his buddies. Like, like the guy had some problems. <laughs> but he was chosen by God, as it turns out, to be the judge over Israel for 20 years. Um, that's an interesting thing, that God uses these very flawed leaders. Um, before the 2016 election, I said, no matter which way you vote, you're gonna vote for a sinner, as it turns out. Um, uh, and that's, that's, that's true, no matter what happens. Um, somewhere, there's people out there that say, Brett said you're supposed to vote for Trump. Never said that. 
Um, people that claim that, I challenge anybody to say, find the teachings. All of our teachings are online. Everything I've ever said is online. Um, what I did say is there's issues that we as Christians should care about. And I went over some of those issues and, and people were implying, you know, or inferring, whatever you wanna do with that, that's fine. All I'm saying is for me, the biggest, you know, issues uh, of the day are, you know, things like, uh, you know, abortion. That's a big issue. Because uh, I believe it's murder of innocent little children. If you, if you have to give me credit, if I believe that, which I do, I should be passionate about that. Uh, and so should you. Um, also the nation Israel and our, our stance in the position of Israel. Um, I think that's gonna be one of the most important attributes of a leader in our day uh, because the Bible says that's an important thing. And the, the nations are, there's a, there's a whole nother judgment uh, by the way, there's the great white throne judgment, the judgment seat of Christ, but there's also the judgment of the sheep and the goats where God's gonna sort out the nations who treated Israel rightly and those nations who treated Israel wrongly. Um, it's a big deal to God and it should be a big deal to us. So I did make some points about things that, here's some things I vote about and I'm very passionate about. And as Christians, biblically, people say, Brett, you shouldn't be political. I'm not, I'm biblical. When I talk about Bible stuff, if it happens to be in your puny little political world, whatever, but I'm talking about the Bible here. It's the Bible. The Bible tells us these things. Uh, and so that's an important thing that we need to kind of think about. Um, but ultimately, I, I find great comfort because even whatever way we vote, if it doesn't go your way, guess what? the Lord raises up kings and he can put them down. Um, Daniel acknowledges that. And by the way, Daniel, he sees that in his lifetime. You know, he sees uh, Zedekiah uh, or, you know, Zedekiah and Jehoiakim and these kings of Jerusalem. You know, he sees them go down in flames. And he sees Nebuchadnezzar rise up and take over that part of the world. He's gonna see Nebuchadnezzar go down and he's gonna see Darius the Mede come in. Like Daniel's gonna see kings come and go. Um, he's acknowledging that God is the one who does these things. Um, so that's the, that's the third thing. The fourth thing is in verse 21, uh, the third part of verse 21, he giveth wisdom unto the wise and knowledge to them that know understanding. Um, boy, I'm so thankful for that. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge uh, to them that know understanding. Um, one of the great things in the Bible that I love is um, if any of you lack wisdom, the Bible says in James, all you gotta do is ask. Lord, if you ask for wisdom, the Lord will give it to you. That's something I pray for daily. Lord, give me wisdom because how I need wisdom uh, and knowledge. The Lord says, I'll give that to you and I'll give it to you liberally, the Bible says. Don't you love that? The Lord will give you liberally. He'll give you wisdom. Um, but number five, it says, um, he, verse 22, revealeth the deep and secret things um, man, this is great because the book of Daniel has some deep and secret things and they'd be locked up until modern times. Remember, seal up the words of this book until the time of the end. Daniel chapter 12 says, we talked about that a couple weeks ago and the Lord's gonna reveal those secret things to us as, as uh, time unfolds. I love that about the book of Daniel. Um, but the revealer of secrets and, and Daniel has a very specific thing he's talking about. The secret thing in this case was Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And he's acknowledging that the Lord revealed that to him. The sixth thing after the revealer of secrets and deep things, um, it says, he knoweth what is in the darkness. Um, I like that because um, we need to be reminded of that. Jesus talked about how men love the darkness because their deeds are evil. Um, but the no, no, Lord knows 
Everything is naked and open to him with whom we have to do, the Bible says. Hebrews talks about that. And so we gotta remember that um, even though you think you're doing stuff in the dark and, and nobody sees it or God doesn't see it, as it turns out, he knows what's in the darkness. And then number seven, on the last uh, praise of his seven attributes of God, um, it says, and the light dwelleth in him. Oh man, this, this is foreshadowing Jesus who would come, God in the flesh, who declared himself to be the light of the world. Um, so uh, really, really key, key thing. So I love how Daniel took his problem to the Lord in prayer, number one. Um, he, he, uh, the answer moved Daniel to praise, but then uh, number three, the opportunity then moved Daniel to action. Um, that's the third part of this. And then we, we kind of see the rest of the story after this. The opportunity moved Daniel to action. Um, Daniel saw this as an opportunity to do what God called him to do and to, to be faithful to the Lord. I don't think Daniel did what he did out of honoring the king or uh, wanting to be accepted among the elites of Babylon. Um, now let's talk about the elites of Babylon. We, 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 we've mentioned them uh, you know, last week, <laughs> the Chaldeans, the magicians, the soothsayers and all these guys, uh, but let's talk about them for, for just a minute. Um, the elites of Babylon, um, they're listed here for us uh, several times. The first one that you see here and a lot of times in this list of who these elites were um, you know, is the magicians. Now, I gotta say, uh, it's funny how the King James translators translated these words. And, and uh, I gotta say, uh, when King James put together his translators, uh, they were an amazingly brilliant group of guys. That's why the King James Bible, 1611, uh, this translation has endured all kinds of scrutiny and, and uh, uh, textual criticism. Like the King James is great. That's one of the reasons I like the King James, by the way, is because it, um, it's just withstood all the test of time. I like the King James because it's kind of poetic. I like the King James because I grew up with it and it's hard for me to change. <laughs> I'll admit that. And if you don't have a King James, guess what? You're still saved. Yeah. Uh, people that are saying the King James Bible is the only true translation. Uh, I'm just gonna say that's not accurate. Um, there's a lot of great translations. If I had to switch, I might go to New King James. Or if I, really had to, if I really wanted to make a change, I'd go to ESV. I love the English Standard Version. New International Version's fine if you go pre-1984, uh, before they started changing gender issues in the NIV. Um, and then also uh, New American Standard. Uh, some of the scholars believe the New American Standard is maybe one of the better translations. Like, like the heavy duties, heavy hitting Hebrew, Greek, Aramaic scholars would say, the New American Standard gets it done. Um, I like it. I have it for a study Bible at home that I use. Uh, I use all of those uh, translations. Um, but New American Standard is, is very esteemed. It's a little dry reading. I, I, let me give you an example. Like when Jesus says, verily, verily, I say unto thee, that's King James, uh, NASV, truly, truly, I say to you. It's just, it, but some say it's, it's, you know, more accurate. The scholars do. So that's a good one too. If you're with the New World Translation, the Jehovah's Witness, Boys in Brooklyn, the Watchtower, burn it. Uh, it's not a Bible. Uh, it's not a Bible at all. It's, it's a wacko uh, thing that they try to, you know, sell off as a translation. Also, the Book of Mormon is not a real translation of the Bible, but they've just changed little nuancey things enough to make it false. So watch out for these uh, charlatan ones. But there's a lot of really good ones. 
But um, the reason I talk about the King James and their translations, this is an area where it's a little bit funny. It's like, I'm not, nobody really knows why they translated some of these words as much as they did. Now, in our defense today, we have a lot of writings that maybe they didn't have access to fully at that time that helps us define some of these ancient languages even better than back in 1611. Uh, the word magician uh, is an interesting charmatome uh, which um, it, 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 you picture, you know, David Copperfield. No, um, this is, uh, uh, is he even around still? Uh, I don't know. Um, but uh, this was more of the elite educated. They weren't doing magic tricks. They were the uh, know-it-all people, um, sort of like the Berkeley professors, if you could sort of uh, put modern day terms on it. That's what these guys were, uh, these magicians and what have you. Then the next group of people, um, you know, were the, the astrologers. And again, you're thinking, oh, they were stargazing and looking to the stars. Um, there is a group that does that. This is not that group, by the way. This is where the King James translator put astrologer, but Ashol is the name in the Hebrew. And they were the ones who were kind of mystics who liked to reveal secrets and dreams. And they were kind of the, the mystics sort of guys uh, that did that. The next group would be the sorcerers, um, uh, Harry Potter and those guys. Uh, and this is more of the magician thing that you're thinking about. Um, and the Hebrew word there, kasaf, um, uh, which means magician or even the witch doctors. And physicians in those times were less medical and more witch doctory, if you could uh, sort of picture that. Uh, that's why physicians weren't taken super seriously in ancient times. They didn't really have the science to back up some of the things they were doing. That's true even as close as George Washington in history. Remember the bloodletting? The doctors went around bloodletting. Uh, they would drain your blood because they thought that might help you feel better. Um, and uh, some of our great historical figures died because doctors were like, we're just gonna let a little blood out of you. It'll make you feel better. And they ended up dying. Wonder why they died. You kind of need that blood as what turns out scientifically, uh, witch doctors. So um, we had those quacks in times past as well. Um, there was also another group called the Chaldeans. Uh, the Chaldeans, uh, uh, and the, the Hebrew uh, there is Chasdi, which means the priest, and they kind of were in control. They were sort of a powerful bunch there in Babylon. And you'll hear the Chaldeans mentioned a lot, uh, and, and it's because they were the powerful ones. They had sort of the, they were pulling the levers in Babylon. And, you know, doing the, the, the bidding of the king, sort of in the muscle behind it a little bit, uh, even more on a political sort of level. Um, the last group that we talk about here is the soothsayers. The soothsayers, uh, Hebrew word uh, gethar, which is they're the ones who are the stargazers and the astrologers who are looking to the skies and what have you. Um, just, just an FYI, these guys, but they were, they were the elite of Babylon. These were the guys who, um, you know, uh, Nebuchadnezzar had in his arsenal to try to figure stuff out. Now, when Daniel and, the, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were seen as blessed in chapter one, these boys were kind of thrown into the group of elites. They were part of this crew. Uh, and you might say, well, which one did they think, you know, uh, Daniel uh, was? Well, if, if, you, if you wonder, this is a kind of funny thing, but the one they call the magician is actually probably the one they probably put Daniel and those boys into that. Not, not because they were magical, but because they, were, they had knowledge and they knew stuff. Um, and that's probably the group that they were sort of clumped into. So all that to say, um, when, when it gets down to it, um, you know, that's why Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego end up on the chopping block, literally, 
uh, because they were part of this team. Uh, but Daniel now and his buddies, they, they surface. And, and uh, let's, let's see how that goes. Um, oh, by the way, praise and then thanksgiving. That's the next thing. Daniel gives the seven praises of who God is. And then he ends his prayer um, with, with thanksgiving. Verse 23, I thank thee and praise thee, O thou God of my fathers, who hast given me wisdom and might and hast made known unto me now uh, what we desired of thee, for thou hast now made known unto us the king's matter. Um, man, I love that. It made known unto us the king's matter. He's just giving thanks. Lord, thank you for giving me this. Um, we all often worship when it's most convenient, you know, but I love how Daniel worships the Lord and gives thanks, even when his head is literally in, you know, the chopping block, uh, ready to be killed. Well, verse 24, it says, um, it says, therefore, Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had ordained to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus unto him, destroy not the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king and I will show unto the king the interpretation. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said, uh, said thus unto him, I have found a man of the captives of Judah that will make known unto the king the interpretation. Now, now, remember, Daniel went and found Arioch. Arioch says, I have found a man. Why would Arioch do that, uh, this guy? I think Arioch knew he was on the chopping block too if he didn't do his job and cut up all these people. He's like, hey, Nebuchadnezzar, I found, I alone have found the guy that can give you the interpretation. Uh, he wanted a pat on the back, but he also didn't want to get chopped up himself. Um, you get a sense people are a little twitchy around Nebuchadnezzar because he's just mean and he'll chop you up, he'll poke out your eyes, or he'll barbecue you. That's what he liked to do. So Arioch's like, I have found the one who can get this. Well, the king, verse 26, answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, um, art thou able to make known unto me the dream which I have seen and the interpretation thereof? And Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, the secret which the king hath demanded cannot the wise men the astrologers, the magicians, the soothsayers show unto the king. But there is a God in heaven that revealeth secrets and maketh known to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, what shall be in the latter days. Thy dream and the visions of thy head upon thy bed are these. Now, as we look at this verse, um, this is kind of an important verse. You know, there's a, there's a God in heaven. I love how we talked about this on Sunday, how Daniel didn't try to take the credit. He just says, it's, this, is, this comes from the one and only true God. Daniel's always pointing to the Lord. He doesn't try to puff himself up. But the, the, the thing that we kind of didn't talk much about um, because we didn't really talk about the dream, but as we're gonna talk about this tonight, one of the operative words here you need to mark in your Bibles or in your notes is, the, is that, that phrase, in the latter days. The latter days, uh, that's an important phrase. Um, and and it's a, 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 I know that many of you know this, but if you're just new to the Bible, the latter days, it's an Old Testament idiom used to speak about the end times. It's about the end of the world, when God starts to intervene with humanity. Um, uh, also sort of referred to as the day of the Lord, when God starts to intervene in humanity. When, when, uh, when the world, uh, God says, that's it. Time to stop these things. That's gonna happen, I believe, with the rapture of the church, the seven-year period called the tribulation, the second coming of Christ, 
the millennial kingdom. This is, this is what's being talked about. When you come across that phrase in the Old Testament, the latter days, we're talking about, I think from the rapture of the church on forward, uh, that's what's being talked about. So that's important because this dream is gonna deal with that. It's also gonna deal with some historical things and kind of the world's history as it unfolds, but it's, it's getting to the, the whole dream is gonna get you to kind of understand a little bit more about the end times, okay? Are, we, are you guys with me on that? That's an important thing to sort of acknowledge. Um, and so uh, let's, let's take a look at this and hear what this dream was. We finally get to do that. <laughs> it's taking us a while to get here. Um, so verse 29, as for thee, O king, thy thoughts came uh, into thy mind upon thy bed, what should come to pass hereafter? And he revealeth secret, he that revealeth secrets maketh known to thee what shall come to pass. But as for me, this secret is not revealed to me for any wisdom that I have more than any living, but for their sakes, that shall make known the interpretation to the king and that thou mightest know the thoughts of thy heart. Um, man, you know, um, Basically, the Lord is using me as an errand boy is kind of what, you know, uh, you know, Daniel's saying here. Um, you know, I'm just, I, 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 he didn't reveal it to me because I'm an amazing dude. He revealed it to me because I'm just gonna give you the message God wants. Um, now, Nebuchadnezzar is gonna forget that. Um, you know, and he's gonna, we're gonna see him try to, uh, uh, you know, um, try to exalt Daniel once he realizes Daniel's kind of onto the truth. But in Amos chapter three, verse seven, you can jot this down if you want in your notes. It says, surely the Lord God will do nothing, but he reveals his secret unto his servants, the prophets. Um, uh, the lion hath roared, who will not fear? The Lord God hath spoken, who can but prophesy? Um, you know, this reminds me, it's, it's, it's basically the Lord's word being spoken through a man. Daniel says basically here in, in, in this verse, this is what God does throughout the whole Bible. All the law and the prophets are God's word spoken through a man. That's what Daniel's saying here um, in, in this verse, uh, in verse 30. So here it is, verse 31. Thou, O king, sawest and behold a great image. This great image whose brightness was excellent stood before thee and the form thereof was terrible. The word terrible there means like it wasn't badly put together and looked ugly as much as awesome. There was an awesomeness to it. Verse 32, this image's head was of fine gold, his breast and his arms of silver, his belly and his thighs of brass, his legs of iron, his feet part of iron and part of clay. Thou sawest till that stone was cut out without hands which smote the image upon his feet that were of iron and clay and break them to pieces. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, the gold broken into pieces together and became like chaff, the chaff of the summer threshing floors that the wind carried them away. Um, notice with me, by the way, the descending value of those minerals, okay? Just tuck that away. Um, but uh, the wind carried them away. Verse, uh, middle of verse 35, that no place was found for them. And the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This is the dream, and we will tell you the interpretation thereof before the king. 
Remember, nobody knew what the dream was. Nebi didn't even remember. And then Daniel comes, here's what you saw. You saw a statue, head of gold, arms of silver, belly of brass, legs of iron, feet mixed with part iron and, and part clay. And, uh, you know, it has these, um, you know, this, this, this stone that's cut without hands comes rolling down a mountain and smashes it into like chaff, um, you know, like dust as the stone hits, it just pulverizes this whole thing. Troubling imagery, if you kind of think about it. Well, Daniel's gonna now give the interpretation. Verse 37, thou, O king, art a king of kings, for the God of heaven hath given thee a kingdom, power, and strength, and glory. Interesting that Daniel would start with this. This is the word of God. I think that's an interesting thing that God actually calls Nebuchadnezzar, you're, you're a king of kings. Now, it's not capital K of capital K. It's just king of kings. So among the kings of the world, um, here the Bible tells us in God's inspired word that he was a king over all the kings of the world. Um, and, and this is an interesting thing because um, historically, you really could make a, an argument that he perhaps was the greatest king that ever walked the face of the earth. Some might say Solomon, there's some other kings, but uh, the more we learn about Nebuchadnezzar, even extra biblically, the more we realize that, man, Nebuchadnezzar was, was a powerful king who did a lot of amazing things, you know, and built up Babylon. Babylon was already built up pretty amazing before he even got there. But when he got there, he did some more uh, amazing things, building the Hanging Gardens, one of the um, seven ancient wonders of the ancient world uh, and, uh, and fortified the city even greater than it was before. You know, we'll talk about the walls of Babylon and some of that stuff in a future couple chapters. Um, but hundreds of feet tall, these big towers, impressive towers around the wall. Um, and, and then there were walls within walls guarding Babylon with the river Euphrates as the moat big heavy duty river. It wasn't a little trickle of a, of a, you know, like you see in the movies, a little, you know, a little moat with some crocodiles, uh, 20 feet between the wall and, the, and then the drawbridge. This was the Euphrates River that went around the city of Babylon. And then there was a wall outside of that. Like the city was impressive. It was bigger than Washington DC is today. It was big. Bible time cities, by the way, were tiny. Um, so, so when I say that, I go, so, so whatever, as big as Washington, D.C., wait till you go to Israel with me and see the size of ancient cities. Um, like, like the size of Jerusalem is, is funny because even the, the, the relatively modern part of Jerusalem, when I say relatively, the walled portion, the, the, the walls you see in Jerusalem today are from the Ottoman Turk era. They're only 500 years old, the walls in Jerusalem today. Um, they, if you dig down deeper in the walls, as you go deeper into the walls, you start seeing you know, ancient walls. And you, if you dig deep enough, some of the walls are still there of Solomon's era. Uh, and they're bigger stones. And, uh, but, but the walls you see today are the Ottomans. And that was one of the bigger times of Jerusalem, but it's still tiny. Uh, Jerusalem was tiny. Um, I went and saw with a couple buddies of mine, we went and saw the city of Gath. Um, and I, when I think of Gath, I think of this giant Philistine city where Goliath was from. Um, Gath is about five times the size of this room. <laughs> like seriously, uh, it's just, it's on a, it's on a, you know, tell there in, they call it Gat in Israel today. Um, but uh, it's just, it's just, I mean, most cities, Jericho is about the size of this. Nazareth, the, the Nazareth, the city where Jesus was born, smaller than this room. 
Um, so you have to understand, biblical-sized cities are, are just kind of tiny. Babylon was the size of Washington, D.C. So that's what you have to kind of realize, you know, scale of the day, you might argue there was no greater city in the world at that time. It was a powerful, beautiful, wealthy city. And, and here the Lord acknowledges that, you know, Nebi is the king of the kings. Uh, I, I think that uh, as history unfolds, the more we find out archeologically and the more we learn about Nebuchadnezzar extra biblically, we realize maybe nobody really compares to him because that's what the Bible says about him. Kind of interesting. So, um, and, and, and also it's interesting, again, the Lord, as Daniel prayed, the Lord is the one who puts men in power. And it says, God gave you um, the kingdom, your power, your strength, and your glory. That was all given to him by God. Now it's gonna take a lot for Nebuchadnezzar to get this through his thick gold head. What do you mean gold head? Well, I'll tell you in just a second. But, but isn't this funny? The Lord says, I'm the one who gives you glory, strength, power, and your kingdom. It's gonna take a few chapters before this gets through Nebuchadnezzar's thick head. He thinks he is responsible for his glory and his power and his great wisdom. How thick are you and how thick am, am I? How many times does the Lord have to tell us stuff before we really believe it? Well, we're gonna see Nebuchadnezzar gonna have to learn the hard way. This verse, verse 37, he's gonna have to learn the hard way. And so all that to say, uh, verse 38, it says, and wheresoever the children of men dwell, the beasts of the field and the fowls of heaven hath he given into thine hand and hath made thee ruler over them all. Thou art this head of gold. Okay, so let's take a look. Uh, you know, as we kind of start to do this statue, we see this, uh, this, this Mesopotamian looking sort of statue. And we got these, this description of the dream um, and the head of fine gold is, according to this verse, Nebuchadnezzar uh, you know, and the Babylonian empire. Um, now we talked about the descending order. I want you to notice the descending things that have to do with these kingdoms that, that Nebuchadnezzar sees. He sees these, these are basically kingdoms that are gonna come and go through the ages. And this is part of his dream. This is kind of interesting. But, um, but he defines him as the head of gold. Um, and by the way, Herodotus writes about some of these things, that ancient historian about how uh, Nebuchadnezzar uh, sort of identified himself with gold things. And the Babylonian empire was the city of gold and the, the empire of gold. That's kind of the way they called it and looked at it. Um, by the way, Jerusalem's also called the golden city. Um, and that comes from both the time of Solomon, but it also comes from the actual Jerusalem limestone that they build everything with there. Uh, that limestone, when the sun gets about this time of the evening, all the buildings of Jerusalem uh, start to turn this beautiful gold color and it's called the golden city. But um, in ancient times, Babylon was, the empire was known as the golden um, uh, empire, according to Herodotus. Now, the Babylonian empire was, um, uh, just note this for you note takers, an absolute monarchy. And the, you know, when it says here that you know, Nebuchadnezzar, you've been given a kingdom of power, he's the most powerful of this whole list that we're about to look at. Notice as we go down this list, the power is going to decrease as far as the empires go. And this is kind of an important thing to note. So the first thing is we see the Babylonian empire, absolute monarchy, it had, the, had more power than any other. Um, uh, and we're gonna kind of see that in its descending order. Then verse 39, 
uh, the first part, it says, after thee, the head of gold, shall rise another kingdom inferior to thee. Um, now, this is interesting because uh, it is amazing. You, you know, you think that an amazing kingdom like Babylon would be beaten by a kingdom that's superior to Babylon. But in all of these cases, the inferior kingdom is gonna beat the uh, superior kingdom. Babylon, people thought it was impenetrable, unbeatable, but uh, there was a little group called the Medes and the Persians. That's who this, you know, the, 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 uh, the breast and the arms of silver. They're, they're, we know that this kingdom that Nebuchadnezzar sees is the Medes and the Persians. Um, notice two arms, Medes, Persians, Cyrus and Darius for you history buffs. And this is what is typified here in the uh, arms of silver. Now, when we go from the absolute monarchy of the Babylonian empire, who was a king, you know, off with your head, whatever you, you know, wanna say or whatever. Well, the Medes and the Persians were a constitutional monarchy. Um, and Darius and Cyrus, these guys had similar power to Nebuchadnezzar, but they still had a constitution they had to abide by. They could change the constitution, but once those constitutions were signed, even the king couldn't change it. They had to kind of go by their own rules uh, and what have you. And we have an example of that when we get to the story of Daniel and the lions, then if you recall, we'll talk about how the Medes and the Persians were a constitutional monarchy, but it was, it was a weaker form of government um, and it was a weaker empire. The Medes and the Persians weren't really that impressive. They just had a huge, massive army. And that's how they kind of came in and wiped out uh, the Babylonian empire historically. The history of this, by the way, is really interesting uh, throughout all the ages. Um, but then it goes on in verse 39, it says, you know, after the kingdom that will rise, another kingdom inferior to thee, and another third kingdom of brass, which shall bear rule over all the earth. After the Medes and the Persians, you history buffs, who came next? The Greeks. And it was led by who? Alexander the Great. This is where the Bible's talking about Alexander the Great, this third kingdom. And what did Alexander do? What was he famous for? Anybody? Hello? He conquered the whole world. Uh, that's one of his, that's why he's called Alexander the Great. He conquered the world. Notice what it says about this. See, this is where the Bible skeptics have problems. They say, how does Daniel, who's supposed to be writing this, you know, or, or putting this down, you know, hundreds of years before any of this actually happens, how does he predict this third kingdom is gonna take over the whole world? Like this is where it's, it starts to get crazy. It's gonna get really, really crazy later on where Daniel's just gonna with great precision talk about future kingdoms and what they're gonna do. But this is the stuff that drives the, the cynics, the critics of the Bible, it drives them nuts because Daniel's nailing this with, with Nebuchadnezzar's dream. By the way, in Daniel chapter seven, we're gonna see the same vision only from a different perspective. We're gonna see the same kind of order of, of kingdoms and what have you. This is a, a vision of Nebuchadnezzar, a Gentile, and he's seeing it from a secular worldly perspective. And what does it look like? A beautiful golden statue, you know, or whatever. But when we go to chapter seven, we're gonna see it from God's perspective. And God's perspective, we're gonna see it as, as these ugly beasts. They're gonna be chewed up and stuff like that. It's, it's ugliness. You know, God sees the ugliness. Man, we see the beauty in our kingdoms. We are the world. We are, you know, we're all awesome. Uh, Michael Jackson and all that stuff. Uh, the, it looks beautiful, like a, a, an Oscar or something, right? Uh, that, that's, what, that's what Nebby sees. 
We'll see in chapter seven, God's perspective on all this stuff. So this third kingdom, the belly uh, uh, and thighs of brass is the Macedonian empire or the, the Greeks led by Alexander the, uh, the Great. Now, by the way, they were an oligarchy, their form of government, oligarchy, uh, which was a weaker form than the Medes and the Persians. Um, by the way, the Medes and the Persians, I told you they had you know, huge, huge armies. That's one of the things that's fun to study about Alexander the Great's army. He had what relatively a tiny little army that conquered the world. Um, how did Alexander the Great conquer the world? Boy, um, I apologize for a lot of the history teachers and professors out there. There's so much that they, they just make history so boring, uh, which it's actually really exciting. Uh, oh, I'm so thankful. I finally in college, you know, got this one professor who sort of wet my whistle to study more about history. Uh, otherwise, I would have thought history is the most boring thing in the whole world. But you know, there's, there's things that happen that are just crazy. Um, Alexander the Great, you know, they, they, they used to wonder how did he have such power and why did his men, you know, um, follow him so, um, like there's no army in history that sort of did exactly what their commanding officer told him to do. There's a story that goes like this where they said, you know, um, how far will your men follow you in obedience? Because he was starting to get that reputation that his men would do anything for him. And he just, he looked at the people and his army was all, you know, lined up in their orders. Uh, and he, and, he, and he, uh, he, he yelled out an order that was the equivalent of about face. And the army, <laughs> about face. And his forward march, <laughs> and Alexander's army started marching away from the group. The thing that was interesting is there was a huge cliff on the far side where they were marching right toward the cliff. And Alexander just stood there and watched. And the guys were watching him and they're like, when are you gonna say halt or stop or whatever? And he just sat there. Row number one marched right off the cliff to their desk. Row number two, right off the cliff to the desk. And row number three, and finally at the third row, he said, halt, about face. And he marched his armor back. He said, that's how loyal they are to me. Like, that, that's a crazy story in history of Alexander the Great. Um, now, it was probably through fear. Um, um, <laughs> You know, you can either die by falling off a cliff or you can, you can be, you know, tortured horribly in front of everyone. Uh, and, and it was a fearful thing. Um, if you want to learn about Alexander the Great, all you have to do is learn about his mother. Most people don't know about her in history, but uh, especially ladies that like history. If you ladies, check out Alexander's mother. She was quite an amazingly scary woman. Um, but uh, we, we won't get sidetracked on that. Um, but all this to say, it answers a lot about who Alexander the Great is, by the way. Um, well, the belly and the thighs of brass is the Macedonian Empire uh, led by Alexander the Great, the Greeks. Um, but then it goes on, it says, after they will rule over all the earth, which they did, verse 40, and the fourth kingdom shall be strong as iron for as much as iron breaketh in pieces and subdueth all things and iron that breaketh all these shall it break in pieces and bruise. And whereas as thou sawest the feet and the toes. Now pause for a second. Before we get to the feet and toes, who's this uh, iron empire? Who came after the Greeks? Anybody? Rome. I always, whenever I think of Rome, I hear the music. You know, all the movies of Rome, it's like, dun, dun, dun. There's Romans marching with their red things on their helmets and, you know, and the iron fist of Rome. Iron, believe it or not, was associated with Rome. Uh, that's kind of an interesting thing. They were called kind of the iron empire. 
And uh, the iron fist of Rome crushed the known world at that time. And it made it through the same region uh, of, of, this, of these great kings, that whether it was the Babylonian Empire, the Persian, Medes and the Persians, or, or, or the Greeks, the Romans came and conquered even more. And, um, and as it turns out, you've got sort of the, the, uh, the legs. Now I told you the two arms represent, you know, the Medes and the Persians. What about the two legs of the Roman Empire? Well, there was, some people argue that it was kind of East and West Rome. Uh, some people say that. Uh, some say it was more the Byzantine side of the Roman Empire. And others say, it, you know, there's two ways, several ways you can kind of divide the Roman Empire into two. But um, there, that's kind of an interesting study in and of itself. But East and West Rome, uh, the legs of iron speaks of this Roman Empire. Um, and now this is important um, because we now come to the feet of toes and uh, and clay, and this is where, for many millennia, the book of Daniel was a mystery. And and why would we, why would we uh, wonder what this is all about? Um, so, oh, is that somebody's phone going off? <laughs> uh, well, we've had a lot of that lately. Uh, hello, it's like a dog. I'm I'm like a dog. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> hearing that sound. Uh, so let's, let's move forward. It says, verse 42. Oh, that's it right there. <laughs> verse 42. As the toes of the feet um, were, uh, well, let's back up a little bit. Verse 41. And whereas thou sawest the feet and the toes, part of the potter's clay and part of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, but there shall be in it um, of the strength of iron, uh, for as much as thou sawest the iron mixed with miry clay. And as the toes of the feet were part of iron and part of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly broken. And uh, whereas thou sawest iron mixed with miry clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they shall not cleave one to another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. Okay, so... Quiz time, historical quiz time. Who came and conquered the Roman Empire? Anybody? Nobody. So what's the deal? Who's the feet and the toes of clay? Now, uh, I'm gonna give you the answer and you're gonna think, Brett, you're just making this stuff up. But here's what you gotta do. You gotta read the rest of the book of Daniel and you also have to see how world history unfolds. And you also have to, and this is the secret, this is the total secret with Bible prophecy and understanding. The part that Daniel saw, and he, he says, I don't understand stuff, and, and the book of Daniel's sealed up to the end. Part of the key that unlocks all the mystery of the book of Daniel is this, Israel, Israel, Israel. Israel is the key to understanding what this is all about. And so um, note, note with me, when did the nation Israel cease to exist again? Uh, you know, remember the diaspora? We talked about, you know, the Babylonian empire was kind of the beginning of the end for Israel, but the Jews still survived and they went back to Jerusalem and rebuilt the temple and the Jews were still there and they were even there and they lost their supreme authority or the scepter of power for you that know Genesis 49 and uh, Jacob passing out the, 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 the curses and the blessings to his sons. If you remember that, it said the scepter will not pass until the Messiah kind of shows up. Um, the scepter passing means they lose their power. When did the Jewish nation totally lose their power once and for all? 
Well, that would be during the Roman Empire. And it would actually be, this is something, um, it actually happened when the Roman Empire took the scepter, what, what was that? The Roman Empire took over the Jews and said, you no longer are governing yourselves. Um, history tells us that during that time, um, all the rabbis and the priests of, the, of Jerusalem were ripping their clothes and weeping when the Romans took away their right for capital punishment. Um, now, why was that such a big deal? Their losing of the right of capital punishment. The reason it was a big deal is that was the last straw that said, you, the Jews, you have no power over yourselves anymore. Remember when they crucified Jesus, they had to get the Roman approval. They did not have capital punishment power because they had lost the scepter of power. And the reason the rabbis ripped their clothes wasn't just that they were losing power, but they were ripping their clothes because the Messiah had not come. And they, they said that their, their Old Testament Hebrew writing said that the Messiah would be coming on the scene at the time when they'd lose the scepter of power. And that hadn't happened. Meanwhile, while that happened, Jesus was a 12-year-old boy confounding the priests and, and the, the religious leaders in Jerusalem. The, the prophecy of Genesis 49 and the scepter of power of the tribe of Judah was being fulfilled. They just didn't know it. They were ripping their clothes. They should get their sewing machines out and get it all fixed up because Jesus was fulfilling that prophecy. The Messiah did show up. They missed it. It's a great prophecy. And I, I, if, you, if you're interested, by the way, you could uh, go back to our teaching there in Genesis 49 and listen to that. But, but all that to say, Israel is the timepiece. Picture Israel, the nation, and all of its activities as the stopwatch and the start watch for all things prophecy. It'll make everything come to make sense. And see, this is why there was so much confusion about Bible prophecy when Israel didn't exist as a nation. Because everybody thought, oh, it must be figurative and we don't know what's going on because Israel's not even a nation, nor will they ever be. That was the worldview. Up until maybe the 1700s, there was hope of Israel becoming a nation again in the 1700s. Um, the 1800s, there was a great movement, but it was May 14th, 1948, Israel becomes a nation again. And suddenly Bible prophecy starts focusing in and we start looking at books like Daniel and realizing, wait a minute, this has to do, the book of Daniel is all about Israel. Almost nothing is about Gentiles um, or, or the church age, I should say, the Gentile age. It's all about Israel. And so um, I'll show you how this works out um, a little bit tonight, but better in coming chapters, how the stopwatch. When does the prophetic stopwatch stop? It stops with the legs of iron because that's the Roman empire. Nobody defeats the Roman empire. The Roman Empire um, fell on its own and kind of imploded and fizzled. And you could argue is still sort of in power today. Do you understand that the Roman Empire is still kind of alive and well in some ways? You can make that argument and it has a lot to do with the European Union. Um, by the way, for you history buffs, it was March 25th, 1957, when they had this, uh, the Treaty of Rome that was signed. It's called the Treaty of Rome. And it was signed to sort of make this confederation of nations that would sort of be out of the old Roman Empire, Europe uh, today. And, um, and, and they've become sort of a thing in, you know, since 1957. Um, Bible prophecy buffs are like, could this be? Out of the old Roman Empire, the 10 toes that come out of old, old Rome? And, um, and it's, it's very, it's very possible, I believe even probable, that it's gonna be some kind of a 10 nation 
confederation out of the old Roman Empire. But when does it start? When does that, Rome, when does that the toes come into place? Um, I believe it's not during the time of the church age. The church age, you and I, this age we live in right now, we had nothing to do with the, the head, the, the arms, the belly, and the legs. We were not in that part of the dream. Israel ceased to exist during the Roman Empire. AD 70 might be a, a notable uh, date when the Romans drove the Jews out of Jerusalem and crushed Jerusalem. And, and if you would, it's like the stopwatch stopped. You might make that argument that when they rejected the Messiah, Jesus, they're dying on the cross in AD 32, Jesus dying on the cross. You could even stop the stop there if you want to. Um, and then shortly thereafter, AD 70, the Jews are driven out of Jerusalem. And, and, and so you sort of put a pause on Nebuchadnezzar's dream from the time Jesus died on the cross until, until, um, when does the time of the Jews begin again? Anybody? Romans eleven twenty five. And when, at the fullness of the Gentiles, when that comes in, the time of the Gentiles full, it says, then all of Israel shall be saved. When does Israel come back into the, the sort of the swing of things? It has to do with the rapture of the church. Once the church age is over, Israel is back into the statue mode. This, this, this prophecy goes back to Israel. That's why, you know, the 70 weeks of Daniel, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself, but in Daniel chapter nine, remember the first 69 weeks were determined upon thy people and thy holy city. That's Israel, that's the Jews, not the church. And, and the Jews are in the first 69 weeks. We've yet to see the 70th week or seven year period. Remember they're weeks of seven years. The 70th week of Daniel still hasn't happened. Why? Because we're in the church age. And when, when, when the church is raptured, that 70th week starts to happen, which is determined upon Israel and upon the Jews. This is imperative that you see that um, these prophecies of Daniel have to do with a nation of Israel that's formed and in, in action. Um, so us seeing Israel become a nation again is an indicator that we're getting close to when that whole time clock begins again. Um, Okay, are you, are you guys still with me? Have I lost you all on that one? That's an important one. Now, so, so this feet and toes of clay, this is a kingdom that is yet to come. It hasn't happened yet. Um, and you say, okay, but there are some hints about what this kingdom will be. Um, part iron, part clay. Um, so it means it's, part iron means it's part of the old Roman empire. Coming out of the old Roman empire, it's still iron, it didn't change substance. If, if you said the feet were of clay, you'd say, well, that'd be a different kingdom, different empire, different people group. But it's gonna be a mixture of the old Roman empire, but also a, a substance of clay. What, what, what could that be? Well, let's take a look at the Roman empire. Uh, just, this is uh, the Roman empire circa, or you know, uh, 117 AD. Um, and you can look up Roman empire maps and stuff. But the Roman Empire, um, some people say these are the two legs, you know, like you got the Northern part of the Roman Empire and then the Northern Africa part of the empire. But you know, Jerusalem of course is part of that and parts even into, you know, Jordan and Iraq and all that. Um, but the Roman Empire spanned huge areas, okay? And you can find maps easily on Google of the old Roman Empire. But here's the thing, the Bible says that there's coming a time where there's out of the old Roman Empire is gonna come 10 nations, 10 toes, and they're gonna be mixed part iron, part clay. What's the clay? I just wanna make a suggestion. 
I'm not gonna die on this battlefield and say, this is exactly what it is. But the, much of the Roman Empire included much of the Arab world um, during that time. Um, <clears throat> and, and could it be that the Europe is the iron part, the old Roman Empire, the Northern part there, but as the Roman Empire grew, it, it included a bunch of nations that were very much part clay. When you go and see Europe today, what's amazing is you're seeing this massive migration of Muslim Arabs into Europe. Um, there's people in England that don't even recognize their neighborhoods anymore. Like, like it's an amazing thing to watch how Europe is being overrun by migrants of, of Islam. Uh, France and Germany have the largest populations of Muslims in Europe. Um, and they've been growing exponentially, uh, especially in the last few years. Uh, Angela Merkel, she opened the doors and the borders of, of uh, Germany to you know, huge amounts of, of Arabs. And German, Germans, uh, the, the, you know, they're, they're all kind of up in arms about the whole thing because it's changing their nation. You know, in, um, in the mid-2016, there were 5.7 million Muslims in France. Um, and that's, that's getting close to doubling, like even just in the last few years. And also uh, same thing in Germany. The EU, the European Union, um, um, uh, the biggest country that makes up Muslims uh, population-wise is that little island of Cyprus. Um, and, uh, and, and, th and th they've got, you know, uh, many Muslims that make up per population. It's overrun by Muslims. It's no longer even a European kind of place. It's more of a Muslim place. And that's happened even in the last few years. Um, and mostly Turkey, uh, uh, people that are rooting there um, uh, in Cyprus and what have you. Um, the Muslim share of Europe's total population has been increasing steadily and will continue to grow exponentially. And the European people don't know what to do. Um, part of the problem for the Europeans is they're very much older than the Muslim population that's moving in. And the reason that's of importance, um, the Muslims are having way more children than the Europeans are having. Um, uh, and so they believe in just a short amount of time uh, they, you know, by the way, uh, it was kind of an interesting thing that happened this last week. They found out in our census, um, white people in America, this is the first time in our history that white population is decreasing. Um, and it's kind of an interesting thing, but in Europe, that's been happening for a long time as far as the Muslim population. And, um, you know, uh, in 2016, the median age of Muslims throughout Europe was 30.4 years old. 13 years long, younger than the average European, um, which uh, talks about, you know, they're having way more children as well. Um, so, you know, the idea of uh, the views of Muslims, they widely uh, vary across European countries, but, but um, some of the fundamentalist jihadists have moved in there too, and they're taking over neighborhoods and stuff. It's just kind of an interesting dynamic. I wonder if these ten toes, these nations are going to come out of the old Roman Empire, it's going to be some confederation of nations that's going to come in during the end, during the last days. Remember, this is where this prophecy is supposed to bring us. It's going to get us to the latter times, um, the latter days. So when you look at this feet of toes and clay, it's the kingdoms after the fall of Rome out of the old Roman Empire. So is it European Union? Brett, there's 27 countries in the European Union. There is now, 
If you follow the European, I remember when there were seven <laughs> and then there were 13 and they're like, oh, we went past 10. There were supposed to be 10 according to the Bible. Um, but you'll know people are, you know, the Brexit and there's, there's nations, the European Union is kind of a weak thing right now. And by the way, these nations will be weak. That's what the Bible says. Um, when people say, oh, the European Union's too weak to be a factor, the Bible says it's gonna be mixed. How does a mixing of iron and clay go? Does it stick together? Can you mix iron and clay and go, oh, this is working out nicely? We're seeing a mixture of iron and clay, if you would, with the Arab population in, in, in the Roman Empire or Europe, and it's not mixing very well. I believe somewhere along the way, and we're gonna see even more detail about these 10 toes. We're gonna to talk about some horns in future chapters and what's gonna to happen to these and what have you. Um, but that's kind of a key for you to understand. The stopwatch is Israel. When Israel became a nation again, that, that's setting the stage for when the rapture of the church happens and then suddenly out of this European empire of some kind, um, there's gonna be 10, 10 toe confederation of nations, a weak government, a weaker empire, mixture of iron and clay, it doesn't hold together. And it's in the days of these kings, what? Well, let's, let's read on. It says um, in verse 43, we got that whole thing of the iron and clay mixture. Um, and then it says, but iron and clay doesn't mix very well. But verse 44, in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom. Oh man, this, this clears up some stuff. When is the Lord gonna set up his kingdom? We don't know. We're told to pray, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When is the kingdom of the Lord coming? We don't know, but it's gonna come in the days of these kings. When this 10 nation confederation comes together, the 10 toes mixed of iron and clay, when that kicks into gear, then that's when the Lord's gonna set up his kingdom in the days of those kings. So do these 10 nations have to be in place before the rapture of the church? No. The rapture of the church can happen today and then shortly thereafter, at least by seven years, somewhere within the seven years of the tribulation, there's gonna rise up these nations. I believe it's gonna be right at the beginning of the tribulation period because the Antichrist is gonna interact with these nations, um, the Bible tells us. And so there's gotta be time for that. Um, and we're gonna see what he does to these nations. The Bible tells us about this. We'll, we'll talk about that in future chapters. But it's in the days of these kingdoms, the Lord's gonna come. When is he gonna set up his kingdom? That's the second coming of Christ. When Jesus returns, Revelation 19, puts his foot on the Mount of Olives, Battle of Armageddon, rules and reigns from Jerusalem. That's when the kingdom of Jesus is gonna happen in the days of the 10 toes kingdom. That's why we sort of as Bible prophecy buffs, we watch what's going on in Europe and we see the nations and there's been times where we've seen the European Union sort of rise. I remember when the Euro came into effect. Remember back in, it was in the late nineties, I think, when the Euro, we're like, wow, this is amazing. And, and, and there was some symbology that was interesting with the European Union. There was, there was a time where the European Union had a symbol. And I don't know if it's still their symbol, but they had a, a thing with 10 stars that was a symbol of the European Union. We, all of us Bible prophecies, you guys, <laughs> 10, 10, they got 10 stars. Uh, you know, and we're like, this is amazing. But, but, uh, but who knows, who knows? Now, I could be totally off and it could be 10 nations around the world. There's a lot of people, I should say some people, that argue, uh, forget the European Union. Um, the reason I don't do that is because there's still iron mixed with the feet. There's gotta be, in my opinion, some form of the Roman Empire as part of this future 10 kingdom nation during the tribulation period. Now, 
Oh man, I'm running out of time. Verse 44, so in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. I love that. Don't you love that? Jesus's kingdom will never be destroyed, which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It, the kingdom, shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms and it shall stand forever. Now check out verse 45. For as much as thou sawest, that stone was cut out of the mountain without hands. Now pause for a second. Anybody wanna take a stab and guess what the stone is? Jesus, right? The rock of our salvation, the rock of ages, the stone that's cut without hands. Um, when, it, when, when the Bible uses the idiom, it was cut without hands, that means without the hands of humanity. Now, can I just say something? I will anyway, even though I'm asking. I, I don't know why I just asked you that. I guess I feel like it's late. But um, there's a movement in, the, in some circles that says that you and I, we the church, have to usher in the kingdom. It's called dominion theology or kingdom now theology. And churches that once were solid and stuff like that, and they, they've kind of veered off on some of this. If you go to a church and you hear a lot about, we gotta bring in the kingdom. We, you know, now, don't, don't get me wrong. The kingdom is something we pray for. The kingdom is something we look forward to. But the kingdom is not you and me, our little grubby hands bringing in the kingdom. Um, Jesus taught us to pray, thy kingdom come. Um, we are not ushering in the kingdom. He's gonna bring his kingdom in whenever he feels like it. Um, it's not a man thing. There's whole churches that have got off on this whole thing where we need to bark dust the school, parking lots, planters, and we need to win people over. We need to elect Christian officials and we need to see the abortion abolished, which we do. But it's almost like they view until we elect Christian officials and until we do this, and, and there's different forms of this kingdom theology and the way they, they shake it out, but, but it usually has to do with us being really busy trying to bring the kingdom in. We should be really busy telling people about the kingdom, having people saved so they can be in the kingdom as believers, but we, we are not the ones who bring in the kingdom. It's a, it's a wrong teaching that's out there and it's, it's grown very much in the, even in local churches around here. It's, it's kind of crept into some of the theology of, of churches and it's a dangerous theology. Um, the kingdom is not cut with hands of man. It's a kingdom that's cut without hands. That's an important thing. Um, and I can show you other scriptures that reinforce that. This is just one of many, by the way. So it says, verse 45, for as much as thou sawest that stone that was cut out of the mountain without hands, that it break in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, the gold, the, um, the great God hath made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter. The dream is certain and the interpretation thereof is sure. Now let's, before we leave the stone, just write down a couple verses about the stone, uh, the rock um, that we're talking about there. There's a couple verses. Um, the first one is um, uh, John. Um, oh, oh, first Peter. First Peter chapter two. Uh, let's flip over there real quick. Um, first Peter 2, eight says, um, uh, there were, it speaks of, the end times, First Peter 2 is all about the end times, but it says, and a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being obedient, whereunto they were also appointed. Why would, why would Jesus ever be called the stone of stumbling or the rock of offense? The answer, Jesus is either a good rock to you or a bad rock to you. It's just questions on which side of the rock are you on? 
Um, go to Matthew 21 real quick. Matthew chapter 21. In Matthew 21, Jesus says some powerful things about himself. Um, and, and people might be confused. What in the world does he mean? But if you kind of get what we're talking about in Daniel, it all makes sense. Verse 42, Matthew 21, 42 says, Jesus said to them, did you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? The same has become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore say, therefore say I unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation bringing forth the fruits thereof. And whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken but on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. The stone, Jesus, whoever falls on the stones will be broken. There's an old saying, you'll either be broken before the Lord, repentant, or you'll be broken by the Lord, crushed. It's just that simple. It doesn't, doesn't make people happy sometimes, but oh, when you be, may realize what a sinner and a wacko person you've been and you repent of your sins, guess what? The stone, the rock of offense, the stone of crushing becomes a foundation that you get to stand on. Immovable, unshakable. If you're a Christian, you're standing on that stone. If you've rejected that stone, then you're on the wrong side of that where it says it will grind him to powder. And that's what this imagery of Daniel chapter two, this stone cut without hands, Jesus is gonna come down the mountain, smash the kingdoms of this world into powder. And then what happens after that? It says it becomes a large you know, mountain that's everlasting. Check it out. It says, um, the mount cut with iron, break into pieces of the iron, brass, gold, silver. Um, the great God hath made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter. The dream is certain, the interpretation is sure. The, the mountain at the very end of this uh, is gonna be the kingdom of God set up. It's that stone, Jesus, built upon Jesus. Everything's Jesus. Um, well, what does Nebi have to say uh, after that? Again, I, I, I gotta say it again. Daniel didn't say, did I get it right? Am I accurate? Don't you love the, the surety that Daniel has? You saw this and you saw that. And you saw all these details and you saw the stone and here's what the interpretation means. Kingdom, kingdom, kingdom. And then there's gonna be this weak kingdom that's gonna be in those days of those kings, the stone and it's gonna, like what a, what a radical dream. But it has to do with the whole world's history. See, now, now let's, let's see how well you were listening. Why didn't Daniel reveal Nebuchadnezzar's dream showing Hitler, Charlemagne, Mussolini? Anybody? What's that? Church age. The stopwatch was off during Hitler, uh, Charlemagne, and some of these other world powers and stuff. That's why they don't make the list. It's only the Roman Empire uh, that never was conquered. And then the stopwatch stops as, as the church age has continued. Once we're raptured, click, and we're gonna see this 10 to, so that's good. You guys were listening, that's great. Um, I'm just checking, just, to, you know, you gotta check your work sometimes. Um, well, verse 46, then the king uh, Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and worshiped Daniel, dumb. Daniel tried to tell him, this is not me. This is the Lord, the God of heaven who reveals secrets. Daniel, do you think Daniel was like, yeah, just you can worship me for a little while. You think that's what Daniel was doing? No. Uh, he falls down to worship Daniel's and then commanded that they should offer an oblation and sweet odors to him. Embarrassing. <laughs> Verse 47, the king answered unto Daniel and said, of a truth it is that your God is a God 
of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of secrets, seeing thou couldest reveal this secret. Um, he got part of this right, but notice he called him your God, not my God. I think that's gonna change in the narrative of this book. God is gonna become the God of Nebuchadnezzar. Um, but he says, your God is a God. No, he is the, the God, the only true God. Um, and he's a one who reels. Verse 48, and then the king made Daniel a great man. <laughs> no, he didn't. Daniel was a great man because God made Daniel a great man. Um, reminds me of that story of the little kid that you know, was waiting for the piano concert. You know, it was a fancy hoity-toity deal. Everybody's in tuxedos. The master musician's getting ready backstage and the grand piano's on the stage. And the little boy, the mom kind of loses track. She's talking to her friends. The little boy climbs up on the stage and he sits down on the piano before the concert's really ready to go. And he starts playing chopsticks. Ding, 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 ding. And, and everybody's like, what? And the mom's horrified. And her son's up there making this noise with the piano. And, and there's people saying, hey, get that brat off the stage. Like, get him out. Ah! People are starting to freak out. Well, the master musician was backstage watching what was going on. The kid was kind of in trouble. People were getting restless. The master musician ran out on the stage and sat next to the little boy and said, just keep playing, just keep playing. Ding, 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 playing chopsticks. And the master musician then started playing along with them and did this beautiful duet, playing with the little boy's chopsticks. And by the end of the song, the crowd roared with applause. That's you and me, we're the guy playing chopsticks. Ding, 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 ding. And, 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 and Daniel's playing chopsticks, ding, ding, ding. But, but here's the thing, Daniel knows it. I'm just playing chopsticks here. And Nebuchadnezzar, oh, you're so, let's give incense to you and stuff. Dumb. Daniel's not the guy that receives that stuff. Um, Daniel was just the messenger. It was the master who knows all things. Don't forget that in your life. You're just playing chopsticks. Just to remind yourself from time to time. Then the king, verse 48, made Daniel a great man and gave him many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief of the governors over all the wise men of Babylon. Now Daniel's in charge. Then verse 49, Daniel requested of the king that he set Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel sat in the gate of the king. Sitting in the gate in the Bible means you're one of the main head people of the, of the whole kingdom. That's, that's where the rulers sat. The judges of the city sat. Daniel's there, large and in charge by God's grace. And uh, we'll pick up the story next week in Daniel chapter three. <laughs> Lord, we're so thankful. Uh, this, this is exciting to see how your word sort of spells out how things are gonna go. And Lord, how thankful we are that um, we know that um, your plan is perfect and your kingdom will come and your will will be done. But Lord, we, it just can't happen soon enough for us. We want your kingdom to come and that it would come quickly. We see what's going on in the world today. And there's so much ugliness and evil. Um, Lord, we are amazed how gracious you are and long suffering you have been. Um, but when your kingdom comes, it's gonna be sure and it's gonna be an everlasting kingdom. There's so many pieces of this we learn here from Daniel chapter two and it makes us excited to see when you intervene. Um, so Lord, your will, your timing. But until then, may we be busy about your work and about your kingdom, just serving you and doing what you want us to do, Lord. Help us to remember these things and internalize them. Bless these, your people who've taken time this night to study your word in Jesus' name, amen.